As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence of investing. Calls are pre-screened and the show was pre-recorded earlier this week. Rick is with Edelman Financial Engines, a part of Financial Engines Advisors, LLC, and the investment advisor that furnishes this program. Barron's ranks financial advisory firms based on assets managed, team size, experience, and regulatory record. Firms self-nominate. Investment returns and experience are not considered. Advisors in the Hall of Fame have been in the top 100 for 10 plus years. Future performance is not guaranteed. This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, sitting in for Rick, here's Isabel Barrow. This is the Rick Edelman Show. This is Isabel Barrow. Rick asked me to fill in while he's traveling. He will be back on next week's show. Now, on to the news on everyone's mind. The coronavirus, the stock market, oil prices, the skirmish between Saudi Arabia and Russia. But at this point, it does seem as though the initial shock of the situation is over, at least subsiding. And we have accepted that this is our life for the foreseeable future. We've accepted that our lives will be different for a little while. There are really no indications at this time this is much more than a headline. For example... I saw multiple headlines this week that stated California declares a state of emergency after the first coronavirus death. The first. Seriously? How many car crashes, heart attacks, etc. have there been in California already this year? The world is not coming to an end, and progress is being made in antiviral drugs, and eventually we will have a solution. In fact, there is already a treatment being used in the state of Washington. Apparently, it's available right now for compassionate use, which is really defined as people who may direly need them in emergency situations, maybe patients who have a serious disease or condition or whose life is immediately threatened by their disease. So that is some great news. However, these periods of panic do create opportunities for those of us who are able to stay calm through the storm. Just look at the wild swings we've been seeing these last few days. Down Monday, up Tuesday, down Wednesday, so on and so forth. On Monday, the market dropped. But interestingly, prior to this day, the S&P 500 had dropped by more than 5% nine other times on a Monday since 1955. And on every single Tuesday after, guess what happened? The market was back up by 2% or more every time. This is just further evidence that none of the so-called experts on Wall Street really know what's going on. The market's moving thousands of points in a day on whatever new news is out. It's not trading on fundamentals. It's just wild swings and opportunists taking advantage of the fear and volatility. 
I mean, imagine that you're in an intersection and you decide to turn left. Then you make a U-turn to go right. Then you say, no, I'm going to make another U-turn and go left again. It makes no sense. You're not getting anywhere. Now, if you think back to the 2008 financial crisis, and as painful as it was, it really only technically lasted about a year and a half. But if you got out at the bottom, how would you have known when to get back in? According to a study by Putnam Investments as of December 31st, 2019, for the last 15 years, which does, by the way, include the financial crisis era, if you'd stayed fully invested in the S&P 500, your return would have been 9% annualized total return. However, if you miss just 10 of the best days during this period of time, your return drops down to about 4%. If you had sold during that market panic in 2008, you would have missed the more than three times recovery over the last 11 years. You would have missed out on tripling your money. Of course, past performance is not a guarantee of future results. So the message does remain to hang in there, stay calm, don't watch the news or watch the market and panic. But if you do get stuck at home for a few days because of a quarantine or your work sent you home to telework, don't start renting movies on Netflix like Outbreak or The Walking Dead. That is not a good idea. Instead of succumbing to the fear and panic, let's all focus on what we can do to take care of ourselves and our families and our friends. Wash your hands. I know you've heard it a million times, but maybe a wave or an elbow bump instead of a handshake. Certainly stay home if you need to. Certainly, if you're sick, let's call our friends and family, too, and make sure they're okay. Let's make sure they feel safe and that they aren't experiencing stress or fear related to this situation. And if you do end up home with kids from school or let's say you're working remotely, maybe you can find some time to review your finances or finish your taxes. If you want some homework, maybe take some time to review your budget or your debts or your mortgage rate. See if you can make some improvements there. Or maybe it's just cleaning out the closet you've been avoiding for a decade. I certainly have one of those. Uh, I would really like to tackle that. But really, when this is all over, we'll be back to business as usual with the same old bills, planning for retirement or vacations or planning for a move. And we can't lose sight of these things. We can't lose sight of our long-term goals because of the short-term market volatility. And in the meantime, we do need to be careful and be aware of the clever opportunists out there that are looking to make a dime off of people's fear. I, myself, have gotten dozens of emails about how to avoid the coronavirus by sending money somewhere or signing up for something. I mean, really? There is a lot of misinformation out there. And as the virus spreads, so does the misinformation. Facebook, Google, Twitter, they all say that they've been removing false and malicious content about the coronavirus as fast as they can find it. They're working with the World Health Organization and other government organizations to ensure that people are actually getting accurate information. But there is so much inaccurate information going around about the virus that the World Health Organization has actually said that it was confronting an infodemic, infodemic, which is essentially that there's just so much information out there we're being bombarded, and we really don't know what to believe. Instead, realize that these times when others are panicking and you are keeping a cool, calm, collected head, this may be a buying opportunity. Like, what if you were one of those who was panicking and trying to sell out of the market to avoid further losses? Well, how do you decide when it's time to get back in? 
It's probably not if the market's continuing to go down. You're going to wait it out until there are signs that it's back on track. But the problem is by then, it's too late. And this really underscores the importance of having a plan ahead of time, of having a well-thought-out, full financial picture where you say, I know how much cash I have on hand for my emergency fund. I know what my retirement plan is. I know what my asset allocation is. I know what my ratio of stock to bond is. This does really underscore the importance of knowing ahead of time. And if you don't have one, you really should think about getting one. Also, remember that the confirmed cases of the COVID-19, or what we're also calling the coronavirus, in China so far, there are about 80,000 confirmed cases. But with a population of 1.4 billion, that means those that with the confirmed case of the disease is only about 0.006% of their population. So while it's now being termed a pandemic, Remember, this is still a very small percentage of people who've been getting sick and an even smaller percentage of people who are very sick and an even smaller percentage of people who are dying. We can try to approach this logically or with data, but you're still going to be bombarded with information and media reports that are going to cause you concern. So try to remember that the emotional side of your brain may be taking over. Try to flip it over to the rational side of your brain that's telling you, look, this will be over soon. We'll all be able to get back to normal. And if you find that you're still worried, you might need to talk to your advisor. Give them a call. Send them an email if you feel you need reassurance. Here at Edelman Financial Engines, we're doing everything we can to help you and your money continue to work in the best way it possibly can. And this current market environment is a great example of why we've been talking to you for years about diversification and having lots of eggs in lots of different baskets. And what I mean by this is lots of different asset classes. Diversification means you own a little bit of a lot of different types of investments that may perform differently in different types of markets. When the stock market, for example, is good, you want to own stocks. But when the stock market is down or very volatile, people run to bonds. But because no one has a crystal ball or the ability to predict the future, we all have to own it all all the time. We all have to be prepared for when markets like this do happen. And you're thinking, but how do I protect myself? How do I protect my 401k? Remember, the money is not lost until you sell those investments. Don't touch it. Market volatility is normal, as is feeling overwhelmed or anxious because you're watching it go up and down. But asset allocation and diversification can still help. So talk to your advisor. And if you don't have one, perhaps now is the time to reconsider that. One of the great benefits of working with an advisor or more specifically a fiduciary is that we are here watching your portfolio so that you don't have to. Our company has the technology and systems in place to keep a seamless operation, even if we're working remotely for a few days. We are still here and open for business. We've also created a coronavirus resource center to help you with real, actual, timely information about the coronavirus and what steps you can take to protect yourself. It's easily found on our website, rickedelman.com. Click on that link and it will take you to the resource center to get the information you need. Or of course, as always, you can call us 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742. We'll be back with more on The Rick Edelman Show.
with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for joining us on The Rick Edelman Show. As you know, Rick's traveling, but he'll be back next week. I'm Isabel Barrow, sitting in this weekend. We're going back to the phones to Megan in Columbus, Ohio. Megan, you're on with Isabel. How can I help you? Hi, Isabel. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Yes. So my question um, for you today is really about the real estate market right now. Um, just because of the historical low rates that we're seeing um, for 30-year fixed mortgages. Um, I'm currently in the market to buy a home. Um, Recently, my husband and I made a uh, good investment on our first home, and we made um, over $200,000 on the sale of our home. Um, And as we've started to look at new properties, um, my real estate agent has kind of tried to get me to consider higher priced homes um, because of the historical low interest rates. So um, I've kind of gone back and forth on that. this with him is I want to make sure my monthly payment is something that I'm comfortable with. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that I am taking advantage of the interest rates. And, you know, I just I want to make sure that, um, you know, I would like to hear from my financial advisor's perspective um, should I be buying a higher priced home right now with the interest rates or should I really focus on the monthly payment um, that makes sense for me um, and, and, and I guess invest that money instead elsewhere? So do you understand, I guess, that question? Yeah, I understand the question. Your question is, hey, look, rates are really low. Yeah. I made some money on the house that I sold. Should I buy a really expensive house because the rates yeah. are so low because my realtor yeah. is pushing me to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And the answer is absolutely not. Um, I mean, okay, we talk all the time on this show and within our firm, we have um, Mm -hmm. a saying, which is to have there's 11 reasons to carry a big, long mortgage or what we call the BLM. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you should be buying a house that you're not comfortable with the cost of or that you should be buying a house that's more expensive than what you can afford. So that's mm-hmm. not the point of it. The point of it, rather, is to say, mm-hmm. buy a house that you can afford that makes sense mm-hmm. for you and then yeah. borrow against it, put 20% down, put 80% mm-hmm. on a 30-year fixed mortgage at the lowest possible rate you can and leverage mm-hmm. your money. Um, and there are 11 reasons okay. to do that. And I could go through all of those. But it, at yeah. this case, let's just kind of talk about let's talk about the situation with what your realtor wants you to do and what you can realistically mm-hmm. afford. So take me through mm-hmm. some of the numbers here. You said you made $200,000 in the sale of your current home, which is great because now you have yeah. presumably a down payment. Mm-hmm. to put on the next house. So what's the price range that you're comfortable with? So we were looking at a house for 650 is what we were looking for. Um, you know, I, I could go down a little bit. I said I could go a little bit over that if that if it makes sense. Um, but I kind of wanted to stay around the 650 um, mark. And so I was looking for a payment around 3500 a month, give or take a little bit. Um, and that would have us put down like 175k cash. Okay. So follow my math on this. If you're mm-hmm. buying a house that's 650,000 mm-hmm. and you put 20% down, which is mm-hmm. the least and most amount that you should put down, 
That's a hundred sixty five. So that's one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to put mm-hmm. down. OK, so yep. don't put the one seventy, put the hundred and thirty down. Now you have okay. a mortgage that is six fifty minus one thirty. Your mortgage is five hundred and twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. So if we just ballpark that at, let's call it 4% interest rates, I, I don't know, you know, it's yeah. give or take, for yeah. 30 years, that's a payment for principal and interest of about $2,500 a month. Now, you are going to have taxes and insurance. Maybe that adds the extra $1,000. But certainly, mm-hmm. if you're comfortable with a $3,500 a month payment, you can afford a $650,000 house, putting 130 down and leaving $70,000 in your bank for moving costs, for upkeep to your house, for yeah. emergency funds if you don't have it. The taxes in this area are really high, so it's actually about $16,000 a year. So that adds quite a bit to the payment. And, you know, we're going from a house that was tax abated before, so we didn't have taxes in our payment. So when you add it, roughly, you know, I don't know what 16K is divided by 12, but it's a lot on top of that payment. It does put us at a point of where almost $1,300 more on top of that. We get kind of close to that $3,500 um, and we have an HOA in this area as well. So that's kind of where I was thinking I should put more down than 20% um, to get me closer to that payment. Um, but that's, I guess that's where I just wanted to make sure that with the economy before coronavirus doing so well in the stock market, making sure I shouldn't just be investing this money instead uh, of putting it down on the house. But it, it does sound like you're in an agreement that I should be in a monthly payment that I feel comfortable with more than investing the money. Well, no, that's not exactly what I'm saying. What I'm saying is don't buy a more expensive house because your realtor is pushing it. And yeah. um, so that that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't you know, or put more money down on the house and then Mm -hmm. have less to invest. Because in fact, I think if your payment is a couple hundred dollars a month more than the 3,500 that you're comfortable with, keep Mm -hmm. in mind that you only put down 130, you've got $70,000 in the bank for you to be able to then use to help to make those additional payments per month. So my thinking on this is, and you mentioned, you know, with the stock market as volatile as it is recently, and I get it. Your fear is if I take that 70000 and I don't put it into the home, what will happen to it? Could I potentially lose it if I invested it all in the stock market? And you're investing, you're talking about a mortgage for 30 years, Megan. So you have 30 years to have a payment that is your principal and interest portion at least is fixed until you refinance again at any point in time if the rates go lower they don't go lower, then you're not going to refinance. So your principal and interest portion is yeah. fixed. It's not going to go up. Yeah. Now, granted, your taxes and insurance could go up. So your payment might be okay. you, payment might be a little bit you know higher every single year because of that. But again, you have this extra $70,000 and you don't have to put it all in the stock market. But certainly, if you're investing it over 30 years, you can put some of it in the stock market. And I don't okay. think... So my... my my overall advice here is don't buy a house that's more expensive than you think you can yeah. afford or what you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. But if putting 20%, only 20% down means you have a little bit more money in your pocket for all of the mm-hmm. unexpected things that could come up in the future. And as a homeowner, let me tell you, there's always something, yeah. you know, 
whether or not it's a new roof or new appliances or, you know, a new HVAC system. So having that money in the bank means you don't have to go out later and get a home equity line of credit to fix something. You know, you don't have to go out and take a home equity loan. Um, And you have that money again to be able to support you helping to make those extra payments if you need it. If you, you know, if you find that, hey, the extra $200 a month that it costs me, Mm-hmm. I can't afford. Well, again, you have seventy thousand dollars that you can draw off of to make those extra payments. Okay. Yeah, I guess I kind of forget. Like thirty years is a long time, and it's. I'm just thinking of right now, and it's like hard to think about that it's fixed over time. But yeah, that does make sense to me, um, and helps me understand that a little bit better. So maybe I'll just kind of put a little bit over twenty percent, but not quite as much what I was going to do, and then keep that for anything unexpected or put that towards the payment. Right. The, so. Right. The rainy day fund, Megan. And yeah. m- moving in, you know, you're going to have other costs that are going to come up. I, I always find that when I move, I've got to get new blinds or I have to get a new rug here or there, or new furnishings. And so you need to have a little bit of extra money for the move and you don't want to go crazy and spend all the $70,000. Certainly not. Yeah. Um, however, having, again, a little bit of money in your pocket to help you with all the unexpected things that come up as a homeowner over the long run, I think is going to be more beneficial than you having yeah. that comfort of saying, oh, but my payment is Thirty five hundred okay. instead of thirty six hundred. Um, okay. Okay, Megan. Well, listen, Megan. Yeah. Thanks so much for your call. I wish you the best of luck in finding your forever home um, at the right price. <laughs> and maybe you should yeah. think about a new real estate agent because I want a real estate yeah. agent that understands you and yeah. is going to listen to you and find you a home that you're comfortable with, and not just encourage you to buy the most expensive home that they can possibly find. Yeah. No, I really appreciate it, Isabella as well, and thank you for taking my call. Well, thanks for calling, Megan. Have a great day. You too. More calls coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK or rickedelman.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Money doesn't come with instructions. More of your questions coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. It's The Rick Edelman Show. Isabel Barrow in for Rick this weekend. 888-PLAN-RICK or 888-752-6742. RickEdelman.com online. Bill, welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. You're on with Isabel. How can I help you? So I wanted to ask, I turn 31 next month, and I've been tidying up my finances and finances and reassessing my goals. 
My personal goal is to reach financial independence where my investments can generate enough income to support my lifestyle. I'd like to achieve this milestone in the next 10 years, but I'm not interested in retiring early. I believe my financial position is strong overall. No debt outside of a primary residence mortgage at about 3.7% and two rental properties, both of which cash flow positive, including allocation for deferred maintenance. I started investing in a Roth IRA when I was 18 and have been very aggressive in contributing to workplace 401ks. I have 12 months of personal expenses as well as 12 months of expenses for my rental properties and laddered CDs. So as I look to the next 10 years and beyond, I'm interested in either adding to my real estate portfolio or building a stock portfolio with a 90-10 split between stocks and bonds. I'm afraid without some guidance, I'll fail to keep to a strategy and ultimately not meet my goals. So I'd love to hear your opinion and perspective to keep me on the right path. Wow. Well, first of all, congratulations. It sounds like for a 30, almost 31-year-old, you are doing a great job. Um, I'm very impressed. So I guess question number one I have is you said that you really want to get to financial independence in the next 10 years, but you're not interested in retirement. So tell me what you're thinking there. That's just a personal comfort. I'd really like to be able to know I could generate um, enough to support my lifestyle as kind of a security measure. Okay. How secure is your job? Are you in a pretty safe field or are you concerned that, hey, I may need to in 10 years have enough uh, that if my job were to go away, I would I would have enough to support my lifestyle? My employer's uh, historically been pretty stable, but I think uh, just doing some personal risk management, I'd like to have that comfort. Okay. Fair enough. So, so far, so good. Uh, it sounds like you're doing all the right things. You said you're investing in a Roth IRA and aggressively contributing to your workplace 401k. Now, when you say aggressively contributing, what does that mean? How much as a percentage or a dollar amount are you putting in there? I typically hit the maximum by about uh, October every year. Awesome. Okay, good. So I have no... Uh, you know, <laughs> I have no corrections to do there. You're already doing everything you can. So you're doing your Roth. You're doing your 401k. You said you have 12 months of your expenses covered. So that's your cash reserve if you were to need it. Um, and so at this point now, I guess the big question is, what else should you be doing? That's right. Would, would that be a safe assessment? Okay. So the next place I would start to add is into a non-IRA or an after-tax portfolio. So with whatever you're able to contribute, whatever you can afford on top of what you're already doing to your Roth and your 401k, I would start to add to an after-tax or just what we would call an individual account or it may be a trust account, depending on how you want to set it up, that you can add that money monthly in a systematic way to build wealth. And the reason why we want to do it in outside of an IRA account is, number one, in your case, you're already doing everything you can towards retirement accounts. So money that you put into a non-retirement account would be accessible to you in your 40s if you were to need it. So typically an IRA or 401k, you're looking at 59 and a half. In your case, you want to make sure that by your 40s you have enough. So building up this after-tax account, non-IRA account, um, is a pot of money from which you would be able to draw for whatever you need in your 40s. I think another thing, or actually another couple of things that I want to talk about with you are... All of the other components of your financial situation that may not just relate to building a portfolio. So what what I mean by that is, have you sat down at any point and looked at your situation as it relates to life insurance, disability insurance, estate planning? You know, do you have enough 
umbrella insurance on your home. Do you have children? I do. I have two. Two children. Have you started saving for college for them? Is that a goal of yours? Yes, I have. So you have started 529 accounts for your kids as well? Correct. And how much are you contributing towards those? Uh, typically about $200 a month. 200 a month. Have you done the calculations to figure out whether or not that is going to be enough? It will be a little bit short, but we have the expectation that they would pursue some scholarship or have some uh, investment in the game for their own education. So we think it's reasonable. Perfect. Okay. So we've got that box checked as well. Now, again, back to all of the other things that I was talking about, life insurance, disability, estate planning, umbrella insurance, etc., that's all part of a broader financial planning review or conversation where it's not just going to be, am I saving enough for this one thing? Am I saving enough for college or am I saving enough for retirement over here? But rather, am I doing everything to protect myself? Because the best laid plans don't always work out if the unexpected happens. And what I mean by that is if you say, I want to have enough by the time I'm 42 that I could be financially independent. But when you're 37, you have a disability that causes you to have to reduce your work or not be able to work, well, that can change everything. And all of the planning and all of the work that you did before now is really not helping you because you had an unexpected event. Now, in your case, again, you've done all of these things right. You're saving into your 401k. You're saving into your Roth. You've got a cash reserve. You've even got diversification into real estate here, which we could have as a conversation for another day as to whether or not that's 100% um, what we would recommend. But again, as part of a broader financial planning conversation, I think we would want to look at all of these other things and how they may play a role in your big picture financial planning. But as of right now, Bill, I think you're doing great. Big pat on the back. And if you'd like to have that financial planning conversation with us, feel free to reach out to us at 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742 or rickedelman.com. We'd be happy, thrilled to meet with you. And I think in your case, you're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We have two or three offices within just a couple miles away from you. So we'd love to meet with you, talk about that bigger, broader financial planning conversation if you'd like to. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us, Bill. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show, and on today's show, we've been talking a lot about the coronavirus, obviously, and what the impact is on you, your money, and your plans. And a lot of us are thinking, what does that mean for my trip that I had planned? What does that mean for the cruise that I'm planning on taking? Should I cancel my plan? Should I cancel my flight? Is it dangerous for me to do these things? Well, according to the World Health Organization, traveling by plane does not necessarily increase your risk of contracting a communicable disease any more than any other kind of mass transit. Because ventilation systems on the aircrafts, they use filters that trap bacteria and viruses before that air gets recirculated. And it's about 20 or 30 times per hour that the ventilation rates are changing. Now, most modern aircrafts have a recirculation system, which means they're recycling up to half of the cabin air, but that's going through HEPA filters, which are high-efficiency particulate air filters. These are the types that are used in hospital operating rooms, intensive care units. They're there to trap dust particles, bacteria, fungus, and viruses. Now, where you're likely to get an infection if you're going to get it is between the passengers that are coughing or sneezing. So it's not any different than any other situation that you'd be in where you'd be close to someone, like a train or a bus or a movie theater or the grocery store. Disinfect the area where you're going to seat. Wash your hands. Try not to touch your face, stay away from people who are coughing or sneezing, and just be safe. 
AAA also recommends that people traveling abroad bring all their necessary documents like health insurance cards, hand sanitizer, and additional doses of medication. Obviously, we've heard recently that there are some limitations being put into place on travel from Europe that doesn't affect right now American citizens. So, you know, it doesn't seem like you should be all that concerned about canceling all of your flights, but you should be aware that these, these obviously, these restrictions could change. Now, the CDC has advised that Americans avoid going on any non-essential travel to places like China, Iran, Italy, and South Korea because there are a larger number of cases in those countries. And they also said that if you're traveling to Japan, you should take extra precautions. And in fact, the State Department has warned against cruises. They advised that Americans should not be traveling on cruise ships. They warned that cruises presented a higher risk of the coronavirus infection that does make our U.S. citizens more vulnerable to possible international travel restrictions, including those quarantines. U.S. citizens, particularly travelers with underlying health conditions, should not travel by cruise ship, says the State Department in a post on their website. In fact, Princess Cruises has completely shut down their operations for 60 days because of the coronavirus, and another cruise ship operator, Viking, announced that they would also suspend all ocean and river cruises until May 1st. If you need help, give us a call, 888-PLAN-RICK or 888-752-6742. More of your calls coming up. Stay with us on The Rick Edelman Show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Named by Talkers Magazine as one of the heavy hundred talk show hosts in America, this is The Rick Edelman Show. The Rick Edelman Show continues. You're on with Isabel Barrow, Triple Eight Plan Rick. 888-752-6742. We're going back to the phones. We're going to Charles in Brighton, Michigan. Charles, what can we do for you? Well, I'm retired. I'm 68 years old. Uh, all of my investments are uh, in an IRA. And looking at the required minimum distribution coming up down the road, I'm trying to think of ways where I can migrate you know, some of those investments and some of that money out in the best way into a regular account with a, in a tax-efficient manner. You got any ideas? Well, hmm, is this a trick question? <laughs> 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 so, unfortunately, most likely, most of the money, if not all of the money that you have in that IRA is going to be pre-tax money. And the reason is Correct. that it's a traditional IRA, is it not? Correct, yes. 
So unless you made post-tax contributions to that IRA over your lifetime that you kept track of, almost all of that money or all of it is going to be taxable when you come out. So here are some things that you can do. Now, you know your required minimum distribution is no longer when you hit age 70 and a half. It has now been moved back to age 72, Charles. Well, that's true, but all that does is compress my time period, you know? (laughs) Well, I guess possibly. You're right. And the rate that you have to take or the calculation, the formula is a little bit different. So actually, you have to take out a little bit more now when you're 72 than you would have at age 70 and a half. Exactly. So the number one thing that we see people doing um, when they're trying to save on taxes as they're taking money out of their IRAs for the required minimum distribution is something called the QCD, the Qualified Charitable Distribution. Are you familiar with how that works? Uh, A little bit. A little bit. Okay. So what that is, is essentially the IRS saying, hey, look, you can now make your required minimum distribution payment or a portion of it up to $100,000 directly to a charity, and you don't have to pay tax on that money. So unlike taking the money to yourself, paying tax on it, and then putting it down in your taxes as a deduction to charity, instead you're giving the money directly to the charity and you don't have to pay taxes on that. Again, this is there are some limitations and um, it has to be a certified 501c3 charity. So you've got to meet some criteria and rules. But any of that money that you pay directly to the charity, you're not going to pay tax on. And why would this matter? You may say, well, isn't it the same thing? It's six of one, half dozen of the other, because either I'm giving it directly to the charity and I'm not paying taxes on it, or I'm putting it down on my taxes as a deduction. Well, not always the case, because if you're not itemizing your deductions, you're not writing down that charitable deduction. So if you're not using a Schedule A and itemizing your deductions, which many people are not doing anymore because of the increase in the standard deduction up to 24000 plus now, many people are not itemizing anymore and therefore are not able to use that charitable deduction. So in this case, I think for a lot of folks, the QCD is a great way to do that. Unfortunately, Charles, I don't have a lot of other tricks up my sleeve as it relates to how to how to avoid taxes on your IRA. You may be thinking, should I start to take money out now? Should I do a little bit more now so that I can spread it out? I don't know that I would advise doing that either, because keep in mind that you're continuing to have tax deferral. And the money that you're not paying out in taxes now is staying in the IRA and you're continuing to get tax deferral and potentially compound interest or growth on that money. Um, So I would say at this point in time, not a lot you can do. Leave the money in until you're 72 if you can, if you don't need it. And then consider the QCD at age 72 and beyond if you think that makes sense for you and your family. Well, I didn't save my money to give it away, so... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, okay. So at this point, you know, I I hate to say it, Charles, but at some point we got to pay the piper and taxes are going to have to be paid on that money one way or another. So unless it's going to charity, it's part of it's going to be going to Uncle Sam. So sorry to disappoint, Charles, but I certainly hope that you'll be able to use that money and have some fun with it at some point uh, down the road anyhow. Great. Thank you for your input. And you're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Isabel Barrow here in for Rick this weekend. Do you have a question you might like to hear answered on the show? Well, we've got a great way for you to do that. Uh, RickEdelman.com. There's a Rick Edelman tab in the drop down. It says Ask Rick. And from there, you can go to your smartphone, record your question, and send it through an email link right through our webpage. We'd love to hear your questions and just maybe we'll put them on the show. 
Here's Victoria from New Jersey. This is Victoria. Just have a couple of questions. The first one would be that I have a mortgage paying about $22.32 a month, and the interest rate is 3.875 for 30 years. And then I also have an HOA that's about four twenty-five a month. So, of course, that's an extra expense. And I have an apartment. When I retire, which I hope to retire next year is when I'm 66, I have an employee cash balance plan and $66,000. So my other question is, should I take out the lump sum or do the monthly about $400? Right now, the interest rate that I'm getting on that is 4% while I'm working. I don't know what's going to happen after I retire. And I do have an emergency fund, about $74,000. My question is, do I sell my home or do I refinance? And that way I can get whatever cash out, perhaps. I know it's a lot of questions, but hopefully you can help me out. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Well, this is certainly a lot of questions. I think ultimately what Victoria is asking is, how's my overall financial situation if I want to retire next year? And she's got a whole bunch of things going on. She has a mortgage. She has an HOA. She has a cash balance plan. She's got an emergency fund. Should she sell or refinance her house? There is so much going on here that, frankly, Victoria really needs to have all of this answered in the context of a full financial planning conversation. We need to know not just how much is your mortgage, but how much are your other expenses? Do you have any other investments in addition to the cash balance plan, Victoria? You said you have a lump sum option or should you take a monthly distribution? Well, that's a huge question and we need to know, well, how much, what is the comparison here? What are they going to give? Are they going to give you a cost of living adjustment on your monthly? Are they going to give you a survivor benefit? Are you married? Do you have children? Should it go to the children? Is it going to last as long as you do? Um, And do you need that money to come in monthly to supplement in order to be able to pay your bills? Or would it be better for you to just draw off of the lump sum and take that money and invest it for the long term? These are a lot of questions. I also am wondering whether or not the emergency fund is enough. I don't know what her overall expenses look like. And then the question of whether or not she should sell or refinance, well, that's another big one, too. What really is the underlying question here is, does Victoria have enough money in her pot to be able to retire next year? And what are her income streams going to be? And can she afford to continue to live in this home? And I don't know any of that at this point without having a much broader conversation. What Victoria will need to do is sit down and look at her overall expenses, not just what are you spending on on the mortgage, but what are you spending on your life insurance? What are you spending on health care? What are you spending on food and travel and going out. I think we tend to forget a lot of our expenses. As If I sat down and I said, ah, oh, I think I spend $5,000 a month, I'm pretty sure that I'm forgetting about a ton of things. And it's just natural. We're going to look at it and we're going to kind of forget, okay, maybe I do have some subscriptions to the newspaper. Or, oh, I forgot my dry cleaning bills. I think most people tend to spend a lot more than we think we are until we start writing it down on paper. So she's got to start with a budget so to speak, and maybe not a a technical budget that we want her to stay on, but at least a track record of what she has been spending so we can figure out whether or not it's sustainable. Also, we need to understand what her risk tolerance is. If she were to take that lump sum out instead of taking the pension in this case, what would she invest it in? Would she be comfortable investing it in a mix of stocks and bonds where theoretically she could earn growth over the long term? 
or is she just not comfortable with that period? In which case, we really need to look at the math and figure out whether or not that monthly payment would be better for her in this case. So there's a whole lot going on here, Victoria, and these are all really, really good questions. These are all very important questions, questions that you need to answer before you make the decision to retire. There is no question in my mind that you cannot wait a day longer. You need to go and have a financial planning conversation and look at the whole broader world of what are your income streams going to be. Again, look at those expenses. Let's figure out whether or not you can make all this work. And let's try to answer your questions. But in order to do so, we have to have a lot more information. So this is I'm so glad that Victoria reached out to us. And if you have a question like Victoria, give us a call. 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742, or at rickedelman.com. I want to remind you about our Coronavirus Resource Center to help you with accurate, timely information about the virus and what steps you can take to protect yourself. You'll find the link at rickedelman.com. You can reach us at 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742, or at rickedelman.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Providing personal finance advice for over 25 years. This is The Rick Edelman Show. This is The Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, sitting in for Rick, here's Isabel Barrow. It's hour two of the Rick Edelman Show. Isabel Barrow sitting in for Rick this weekend. And we have some more information to try to help you keep things in perspective as it relates to this last week's coronavirus information. You may have heard that there are multiple governors that have declared a state of emergency in their state because of the coronavirus. But keep in mind that a public official declaring a state of emergency is not necessarily a reason to panic or to believe that there's some heightened risk of getting the virus. Mainly when they make these declarations, what they're trying to do is free up money and other resources for emergency management. They are routinely making these declarations ahead of time 
when they perceive that there may be disasters or a hurricane snowstorm to ensure that the money has already flowed into their locality so that they can prepare in case the situation does worsen. The announcements typically are made to remove some of the red tape involved in potentially getting contractors or using state funds so that the local governments can get supplies and hire workers to aid in the response, in this case for the coronavirus. In some cases, it may also mean that they can activate the National Guard to aid in some type of a disaster response. Also, potentially qualified professionals other than doctors and nurses could be permitted to perform some of the coronavirus testing, which is great. It further expedites the process related to getting testing supplies, leasing lab space, and it allows emergency services personnel to transport patients to quarantine locations that may not be hospitals, among many other things. But state of emergency does not typically restrict your movement, and it does not automatically close any government offices or facilities In some cases, a state of emergency may remain in place until the governor rescinds it or if they have an expiration date. And if there is a state of emergency declaration at the federal level, that would provide a state with up to $5 million in assistance. And if that amount is surpassed, then the president has to go through Congress to get more. But that assistance can include funds distributed to state and local governments, as well as money for individuals and households who may apply for aid in covering losses that may not be covered by insurance. So the bottom line is that as you're seeing these headlines and you're thinking state of emergency, what does that really mean? It doesn't mean emergency in the way that we may all think of it. Rather, it means the states and our governors are doing what they need to to make sure that the resources are there and that the steps have been put into place to protect us all in the best way possible. It's the Rick Edelman Show. Isabel Barrow in for Rick today. We're going to the phones, and we have Martin in West Lafayette, Indiana. Martin, how can we help you? Hi, Isabel. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. So I just had a quick question. My wife and I have saved up a 20% down payment for a house, but I've recently read Rick's book, The Truth About Money, and he talks about, you know, maximizing your mortgage as well as, you know, maybe not having all of your money tied up in a mortgage. And so we had the thought of maybe taking half of that down payment and investing it elsewhere uh, in the market and still using the rest to make a 10% down payment on a house that we want. I uh, just wanted your thoughts on this. Well, I love where you're going with this, but, and there's always a but, I have some clarifications to make. And this is a really, really common question that we get about how much should I put down on my house? What's the right percentage? um, And how do I handle that? And the truth about money tells us 11 reasons to carry a big, long mortgage. And so clearly you've read that and you're taking it to heart. However, we do want you to save up enough, and it sounds like you've already done that, to be able to put 20% down on your house payment. So I know your inclination is to say, yeah, but if I have that extra 10% to invest, I could probably make more money over the long run, and how's that all going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the reason why we want you to put 20% down, well, there's actually a couple of reasons. One is, look, real estate can be fickle. If you had to turn around and sell your house in a couple of years and the market, the real estate market was down, you need to have a little bit of equity, a little bit of a cushion, so you don't have to come out of pocket to get out of it if you can no longer afford it. And the other reason, which is really probably the biggest reason, is PMI. Martin, are you familiar with what PMI is? Uh, yes. Private mortgage insurance. So for those of you who aren't familiar, PMI, private mortgage insurance, is insurance that you pay to protect your lender in the event that you go into foreclosure. So it's not insurance that helps you at all. It's insurance that helps your lender. 
And you have to pay PMI if you put less than 20% down on your loan. And PMI can then last for years. And it can be a half to 1% of the entire loan amount until you reach 78, 80% loan to value. So if you only put 10% down, you're going to pay PMI until you get that other 10% equity. Actually, a little bit more because technically they say it has to be 78%. And that's a problem because that PMI money is just money out the window. It's not money that helps you at all. Again, it only helps your lender. So I would prefer that instead of you paying that PMI for many, many years, put the 20% down. And because now your mortgage monthly payment is going to be a little bit lower, invest the difference. How does that sound? Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Excellent. Any other questions about this, Martin? No, no, that covers it. Um, yeah, we just need to figure out, you know, how much the uh, PMI, you know, insurance would be. But I think what you said definitely makes sense in, in just putting the 20% down. Yeah, it's not worth it to pay the PMI. Put the 20% down. Buy a house that you can afford, a monthly payment that you can afford, and take it from there. Again, your monthly payment's going to be a little bit lower. You're going to get a tax deduction. Have you ever owned a home before, Martin? I haven't. You haven't. This is your first time. Congratulations. That's exciting stuff. So you're going to notice also that now that you have that 30-year fixed mortgage, a big portion of your initial payments are going to be interest. So a lot of that is going to be tax deductible for you, assuming you're itemizing. And that's going to save you a little bit of money as well. That money that you're saving because your tax bill is going to be a little bit lower, hey, take that money and put it towards investments as well. You can still make investments just because you're not saving or investing that other 10% that you had saved up to put down doesn't mean you can't save from here on out. So the money that you're saving by doing this now, you can, you know, I would say take that, set it aside, increase your 401k contributions, start making an IRA contribution, or just save it into a wealth building pot. Perhaps you need to save money into a cash reserve. So all of this is kind of part of that broader financial planning conversation of what do you do now that you've made the decision to buy the home and what do you do about retirement and all of the other things. But if we're looking at this just in a silo as it relates to buying your house, put the 20% down and move on from there. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Excellent. Martin, thanks so much for your call. Remember, you can get us at 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com. If you have a question you'd like answered, We have a great way that you can do this through Ask Rick. Go to rickedelman.com and under the Rick Edelman tab, there's an Ask Rick section. You can grab your smartphone, say your first name, the city you live in, email it to him, and we'll try to get it on the radio show. We've got one here from Paul. Thanks for taking my question. On an earlier show, you discussed the tax advantages of donating monies that are part of an annual RMD directly to a charity rather than first taking the RMD and then writing a personal check to the charity. During that discussion, you said a person has to be 70 and a half, the age when RMDs from a regular IRA start, to donate monies directly from an RMD to a charity. I am 63, and earlier this year, I received an inherited IRA from my aunt. My question is... Because I have to start taking an RMD from the inherited IRA this year, can I donate a portion of that RMD directly to a charity, or am I precluded from doing that because I'm not yet 70 and a half? Love your show. Have for many years. Thanks again for taking my question. So great question here from Paul. A couple of things that I want to correct him on. Number one, 
Now, in going forward, for those who were not yet 70 and a half by December 31st of 2019, the age for a required minimum distribution is now age 72. The year in which you turn age 72, that is the year that your required minimum distributions will need to begin. In this case, Paul is only 63, and this is not his IRA. This is an IRA he inherited. So maybe the aunt who he inherited it from was 70 and a half or older or 72. However, because Paul is not yet required minimum distribution age or older, he cannot take that money and send it directly to a charity. You need to be RMD age or older in order to do this. So in this case, unfortunately for Paul, he can't do it directly, but that doesn't mean he can't gift to a charity anyhow. Because if Paul's itemizing, he can still take that money out of the IRA, and if his intention is to give it to a charity, he should be able to put it down as Schedule A and itemize deductions and and take that as a tax break anyhow. So just because Paul's not able to take this as a direct, what we call a QCD or a qualified charitable distribution, doesn't mean that he may not get a benefit by uh, donating this money to charity anyhow. So great question, Paul. 888-PLAN-RICK. Or visit us online at rickedelman.com. More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. It's The Rick Edelman Show, and if you have questions during this turbulent time and you want to reach out to us, please give us a call at 888-PLAN-RICK or reach us at rickedelman.com. And in some lighter news, as you know, I'm standing in for Rick today. He's been in Australia, where even though they have had only a handful of cases of the coronavirus, they have still had an absolute run on toilet paper to the point where they have armed guards standing in some of their grocery stores. But it's very interesting because there really is some psychology behind why toilet paper is like the thing that people are panicking and buying. Because as you know, you've heard on the show, people were buying up masks first. They bought up all the masks thinking that was going to protect them. And then when they were told over and over again, the mask doesn't do anything unless you're already sick. Well, then people stopped buying up the masks. There were no more to buy. They couldn't find any. But then they moved on to hand sanitizers. And then it was, you know, how do you make a homemade hand sanitizer with your vodka? Well, we were all told that's really not a good idea. Don't do that. People are hoarding hand sanitizer. They're going on eBay for hundreds of dollars. But the next big thing that people are panic buying is toilet paper. Retailers in the U.S. and Canada have started limiting the number of toilet paper packs that their customers can buy in one trip, and some supermarkets sold out. An Australian newspaper went so far as to print eight extra pages of the newspaper in their recent edition as emergency TP. But realistically, people do resort to extremes when they hear conflicting messages and they're they're reacting to a lack of sort of clear understanding of what to do. And then they panic buying begets more panic buying. And once one person does it, everybody's doing it. And it's natural to want to overprepare. And what's really interesting about this toilet paper shortage is that this is not the first time that we have had a run on toilet paper in America. In fact, it was the reality for many Americans in 1973 when Johnny Carson created a total toilet paper panic on The Tonight Show. 
During the opening monologue of one of his episodes, Carson read a newspaper clipping about a potential toilet paper shortage. It was from Harold Freelich, who was a congressman at the time. He had put out a press release warning the public about a possible, but in no way imminent, toilet paper shortage. He said, the U.S. may face a serious shortage of toilet paper within a few months, and we hope we don't have to ration toilet tissue. A toilet paper shortage is no laughing matter. It is a problem that will potentially touch every American. This was in 1973, but the media ran with it, blowing it completely out of proportion with the whole maybe and potential being left out. And then next thing you know, this left a toilet paper shortage where millions of Americans across the country flooded their grocery stores and convenience stores, totally wiping them out of all of the toilet paper. Some lighthearted news in the wake of what we're dealing with today. But if you're one of those hoarding your toilet paper, hey, maybe you want to share it with your neighbors because they may not be able to get it at their grocery store. If you have a question that you'd like to hear answered on the radio, well, we have a great way for you to do that, and that's called Ask Rick. If you go to rickedelman.com, there's a Rick Edelman tab and a dropdown, and under there is Ask Rick. What you can do is grab your smartphone, record your name and where you live, and send us your question by email through that link. And we got a question from Bob. Thanks for taking my question. I'm planning to take early retirement at the end of next year when I turn 55. I've been with my company since I was 21 and have been aggressively saving in my 401k for all this time. I'd like to know now if I should reduce my 401k contributions to the level of my employer's match in this last year of work in order to build up a bridge account to meet expenses until I'm 59 and a half and can take penalty-free distributions. If things go as planned, I am hoping to receive a lump sum pension of $1.5 million. I have approximately 1.8 million in 401k and IRAs, Currently, my wife and I together have about 330000 in various bank accounts, uh, and my wife is 51 and plans to retire also at age 55. Her 403B and IRAs total around $300,000. We own our home and would need about $80,000 a year to maintain our standard of living. When I retire, we'll be relying on those liquid savings for our monthly needs, home repairs, car replacements, unforeseen expenses, and I'd like to see that number at least 400000 or more. So I'd like to know if you think it makes sense for me to dial down my 401k in this last year and if my wife should stop or significantly reduce her 403b contributions once I retire. Thanks again for taking my question and thanks for all you do to educate people about the power of compound interest and the importance of living below your means. Okay, well, Bob has a lot going on here, but boy, is he in great shape. He's got a million and a half dollars from a lump sum pension. He's got $1.8 million between 401k and IRAs. He's got another $330,000 in cash, and his wife has $300,000 in her 401k, 403b. So altogether, that's around $3.5 million. And he only needs $80,000 a year to live on once they're both retired. And even now, his wife is going to continue working for a couple of more years. He said she's 51, wants to retire at 55. So they're both working now another year or so. And presumably, they're both in a higher tax bracket. I would assume, given the amount of money they've had saved, that they're both making a pretty good amount of money. So what that tells me is probably not the best time to start losing tax breaks on the money you're putting into the 401k, Bob. So I would say, number one, you've got enough in cash here to cover you for two to three years of emergency fund. You said your expenses are $80,000. So 
if the rule of thumb is 12 to 24 months, maybe even 36 months of cash reserves, well, you've certainly got that and more with the $330,000 that you already have set aside. So I know you said your goal was to have $400,000 or more, but I don't know that that's technically necessary because one of the things that Bob is missing here is a piece of information that could be very, very helpful. The good news for Bob is there's something called the age 55 rule. Now, what is the age 55 rule? Yet another thing that we all have to figure out what it means. Well, the age 55 rule tells us that in qualified retirement plans, and this is not going to apply to the money that Bob has in his pension, but it will apply to, as I said, qualified retirement plans, which are defined as 401ks, 403Bs, 403As, um, some other uh, qualifying types of plans. But bottom line is, age 55, Bob can access the money within his 401K, and his wife, when she retires at age 55 or beyond, should be able to access the money in her 403B without the penalty. So in essence, he doesn't need the extra cash on hand because he'll have the money that he can draw out of the 401k, 403b without the penalty. So if Bob knew that, he wouldn't be thinking this way at all. Now, what's the problem? Well, of course, he's going to have to continue to pay taxes on that money when it comes out. But again, the 10% penalty will not apply here. There are some other things, IRS rules, that I won't even get into here, but that are somewhat helpful if you do have early retirement in how you can access money out of your IRA if you have to before the age of 59 and a half and avoid the penalty. But in this case, I think with the $1.8 million that it sounds like Bob has in his 401k, He's going to have enough money to get him through to the point where he can access the money in that pension plan, the other million and a half dollars, by the time he's 59 and a half or older. So what do we have? He's got his liquid savings squared away. He's got his income needs covered. His withdrawal rate is only between two and two and a half percent. That's how much is he going to need to take every year off of this pot of money in order to live. And at some point down the road, Bob's also going to be taking Social Security, as will his wife, presumably. So it sounds like Bob's got things pretty squared away. I don't know that reducing his 401k contributions in order to have more cash on hand really makes any sense at all. All he's really doing is giving up a good tax break that he has now on that money he's putting into his 401k. He's giving that up now when he's in a higher tax bracket than he would be in retirement, I think. Without knowing, I can't confirm this with Bob. But again, if he and his wife are both working now, And in the future, they're only going to need to take $80,000 out of their accounts. I think we could probably assume that his tax rate, at least temporarily at some point from age 55 and up, is going to be lower in those early years. So, Bob, don't do it. Keep the money going into the 401k. Keep saving as much as you can there. You're going to be able to access that money using the age 55 rule. Double check with your employer. Make sure that this applies to you. But most likely, you're not going to have any problem accessing your money uh, to use before 59 and a half. So, best of luck, Bob. You've got things pretty squared away. You're on with Isabel on The Rick Edelman Show. 888-PLAN-RICK or online at rickedelman.com. For free articles on personal finance, sign up for Rick's email update at rickedelman.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. I'm Isabel in for Rick today, and we're going to go to the phones. We have Lori in Whittier, California. How can we help you, Lori? Well, I retired from teaching in May of 2019, and my pension is comparable to what my salary was. I've been putting money in a 403B for about 30 years, and I greatly increased the amount from January through May since it was the last time I would be allowed to contribute to the 403B. And I did that to avoid paying high taxes for 2019. So between that and the interest on my home and some contributions that I made, I was fortunate that my tax bill was only $700 this year net. But because I can no longer contribute to my 403B, I'm afraid I won't be so lucky in 2020 regarding my tax bill. So here's my question. If I contribute to an IRA, Roth or traditional, might that help decrease my tax bill for 2020 and going forward? Good question, Lori. And I like where your head is at. And first of all, congratulations <laughs> on retirement. That's Thank a, you. That's a huge accomplishment. And I think you said that your pension that you're receiving is equal to your salary. So I think that means you're in a pretty good place financially. Yes, I am. Thank you. <laughs> so taxes are really the thing that's on your mind here. And I would love to tell you that you could make IRA, Roth IRA contributions, and it would help your tax bill. But unfortunately, the way that the law works is you can only make those contributions if you have earned income. So you actually have to make enough money to be eligible to put it in. So as you probably know, with IRAs, there are limits. So for example, in 2020, you have income limits. Um, You also have contribution limits, but those limits don't really matter to you here because what's happening is if you don't have income to put in, it means that you're limited to zero. So unfortunately, I don't have any tricks up my sleeve here for you. You're not Mm -hmm. able or eligible to make a Roth or a traditional IRA contribution unless you are thinking about getting a part-time job. Maybe not that you need it, but uh, if you Mm -hmm. earned $6,000, you'd be allowed to put $6,000 into an IRA. Really? No, I'm really not. Um, Part of the beauty of retiring is that (laughs) I don't have to um, work part-time anymore. Um, So when you say earned income, so pension is not at all considered income. The pension is considered income from a tax perspective, but not from an earned income perspective for the IRA. I see. Yeah. I see. Good question, though. Okay. Um, So basically, the interest on my house that that I still... um, can write off. Um, and are you saying, well, I, I still wish to contribute to, to different um, charities, but that, that won't help um, much in any way either. 
Well, if you're itemizing, contributions to charities do, in fact, help. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I will continue to do that. Yeah. If you're itemizing, if you're already saying, I'm taking a deduction for my interest on my home and I have other things that I'm going to add to that, like it could be healthcare expenses, for example, certainly charitable contributions, all of that can add to potential deductions that you can take. Okay. So that can help. But as far as the um, IRA, that that doesn't help. The IRA in this case doesn't help. Now, in years where you were still working, absolutely. You know, potentially, if you had been adding to an IRA, you may have been eligible to take deductions for that for a traditional IRA, depending on what your income is. Uh, Or Mm -hmm. with a Roth IRA, you don't take deductions now, but you don't have to pay taxes on it later. So it wouldn't have given you a tax break then, but uh, would have given you a little bit of a benefit later if if your tax rates were higher in retirement. Right. I see. Okay. Well, that, that helps. That helps answer my question anyway. And I'll just have to now think about uh, what I want to do moving forward. Yeah. This doesn't mean that you can't make investments. So if you're in a position where you're looking at your overall financial situation and saying, hey, look, I was able to save when I was working and I was able to put aside XYZ amount into my retirement plan at work. Now I have the same income, but I'm not able to participate in the plan at work. Well, maybe you take some of that extra income and put it aside for a rainy day. Just because it's not an IRA doesn't mean you can't save for your future and for the unexpected things that may come up. And what I started to do, um, not realizing that I would be fortunate enough to have the lower tax bill, I even started what I call a tax account. And any time I was able to, I was putting money towards that um, in, in fear of having a very large tax bill this, this past year, which I didn't. But I could still also do that, just start putting away for that. Or also um, estimating tax. I've heard that that might not be a bad idea either. You may think about doing estimated taxes, or you might think about also looking at the withholding rate that you have on your pension. And you can go to the IRS website, and they have a calculator that can help you understand what your withholding should be based on your situation, based on the amount of income you'll have coming in. And you might be able to get it pretty darn close just by using the withholding calculator and having your pension administrator withhold the right amount of tax for you. Yeah, I thought about that, too, because I can, with the uh, state teacher's retirement monthly, we can even change the withholding amount and withhold more so that the tax bill won't be as great. There's that option, too. Absolutely. The ideal way to do it is to get it so that it's perfect, so that you don't owe anything and they don't owe you anything. That's the ideal. <laughs> that would be nice. Now, yeah. I... I do have another question, Lori, because you said that you had been aggressively putting money into this 403B. So how Mm -hmm. confident are you that the 403B is invested in the way that you think it should be for your future? And what are you doing with that now? Yeah, I have great faith in them. It's put away. I have two children. Of course, it'll be left to them. Um, I've I've taken money out only once several years ago. And boy, I learned my lesson on that one. Um, and I know at 70 and a half, I'll, I'll be having to take some money out. Also, I'm 66 right now. So I have a few years before I have to start withdrawing. But the money is, is in there and it's, it's working for me. Right. And Lori, so that, that's wonderful news. I'm thrilled to hear it. Just a quick FYI, you said when you're 70 and a half, you're going to have to start withdrawing it. Actually, the goalpost has been moved back. It's now age 72. So you got a little extra breathing. Oh, wonderful. You got a little extra breathing room there, Lori. But 
thank you so much for your call. We're thrilled to have you. And um, well, thank you. Absolutely. And you're in good shape, but I'm sorry about the IRAs. Well, that's okay, but thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show. Isabel Barrow in for Rick. Well, we all know Warren Buffett, right? The Oracle of Omaha. Well, he's a very wealthy man, and he has done a lot of work on creating a full-blown estate plan, which we want everyone to do. But in this case, 99% of Warren Buffett's money is estimated at $90 billion in Berkshire Hathaway Holdings, the holdings of his company. And he, in his estate plan, has requested that, quote unquote, today, my will specifically directs its executors, as well as the trustees who will succeed them in administering my estate after the will is closed, not to sell any Berkshire Hathaway shares. Now, generally, trustees are expected to diversify the assets on the trust. And when that's not happened and the value of the trust may have fallen, historically speaking, beneficiaries have gone back and sued the trustees. One of the better known cases of this actually involved the Dumonts in 2004. And this was a Kodak company, concentration of Kodak stock in a trust that was held for 50 years while the stock went down and down and down and down. And in this case, the trustee was charged after the fact for failing to review the investments and not informing the beneficiaries the value was falling. But in this case, the Dumont had the same similar language in the trust that the beneficiaries should hold on to that stock for the duration of the trust. Well, the lawyers argued that the trustee had not performed the due diligence of the fiduciary by diversifying the portfolio. The trustees, in turn, argued that Charles Dumont, who had created the trust in the 50s and funded it with all this Kodak stock, had been explicit in saying, don't sell the stock. And it was very similar language to Warren Buffett's. Now, in this case, what it makes me think of is there's a lot of people who are thinking about their estate plan or their trust and wondering whether or not their wishes will be carried out. And are you putting your successor trustee at risk or your executor at risk of potentially being sued down the road because you say something in your trust that they then try to abide but the beneficiaries don't like? Or what about the investment portfolio itself? You may be able to manage your own investments and be an expert. You may be confident in doing all the right things on your own, diversifying and rebalancing in the portfolio. But maybe like in these cases, you have a few stocks that you follow, but will your beneficiaries or your spouse be able to follow it in the same way, track it and make all the same decisions that you would have when you're gone? And if you don't know or you don't feel confident about it, perhaps you should seek help from an investment advisor or a fiduciary now while you can and not leave that decision to others. And while it might feel like you're giving up some control, in fact, you're gaining control over the future of your money. And you're sparing your family from making decisions in the future without the benefit of your help. If you need help or you wanna talk about this more, call us at 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742 or at rickedelman.com. with the author of the number one bestseller, Rescue Your Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. You're listening to The Rick Edelman Show, 888-PLAN-RICK, 
752-6742 or at rickedelman.com online. Let's go to Brockton, Massachusetts. Gloria, thanks for joining us on the program. Hi there. Uh, thank you for taking my question, uh, Isabel. Um, I listen to the Rick Edelman show all the time when I'm in my car back and forth to work and everything, and I love the information that's given out, and I'm like, wow. But, you know, my situation is a bit different because I'm one of those who didn't really plan very well for the future, and um, so I'm 73 years old. I've been working um, for maybe about 60 years, I guess. Wow. I'm a professional, uh, a nurse. Uh, since 1973. So I raised my family, um, five children, and um, I am one of those who signed on for those um, Parent Plus student loans. So um, here I am now with a small 401k, uh, approximately $40,000. I'm saving 15% of my income. I get paid biweekly. I have a mortgage with about 50000 in equity. Uh, I'm a late bloomer in buying my house, so I've only had my condo for about three years. And um, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I don't have a plan. I, I would love to retire in a few years, but um, between paying off the uh, student loans and small amount in uh, 401k, and I'm saving 15%. Should I increase that amount in my 401k? I don't know what to do. Yeah, these so are all... you'd be able to help me. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for listening. And thanks okay. for your service. You said you've been a nurse since 1973. That's amazing. And and at the same yes, time, you I raised have. five kids <laughs> and sent yes. them to school. So, um, so good work. You are well on your way. And certainly maybe there is some room to improve here, but let's just kind of talk through this. So you said you okay. have a 401k. Yeah, it's about 40000 Well, that's before we had all the problems with the, the decrease, but it's still, you know, it's pretty safe. It's 40000 Okay. Um, and it's managed by my employer's private company or something like that. Okay. Can and I say the company name? Well, not necessary. I mean, the, so you're, you have 40000 You're adding 15% of your income. How much money a year mm-hmm. do you make? I make um, my income. I also collect Social Security. I took it at uh, when I turned 67. Okay. Um, so I collect Social Security, and that's about uh, my total income with my part-time nursing employment is somewhere around 90000 a year. So how much is it for just your nursing? For the nursing, it is um, 80000 a year. Okay. So 10000 is coming from Social Security. Yeah, a little bit more from Social Security, maybe 20000 Okay. 20000 from Social yeah. Security. So if you retired tomorrow, you'd have $20,000 mm-hmm. of income. But... While yeah. you're working, you have another, we'll call it 70000 from work, and you're putting 15% of that, which is around 10000 a year, into your 401k. How much is yes. your employer putting in? Are they putting in anything into your 401k? 3% match. Okay, great. So that's another couple grand. So we'll say you're adding mm-hmm. another twelve, you know, $12,000 or so a year. And mm-hmm. you have expenses. So you have a condo. You have to pay for utilities, you have to pay for food, and you're paying on student loans. So tell me about yes. how much you think you spend every single month. Um, I try to keep a budget. I'm spending uh, probably about 4500 a month counting condo 
you know, mortgage uh, expenses and student loans. I, I do have a, an adult son that lives with me. Okay. But his salary is minimal, so his contribution is kind of minimal. Okay. Now, and you have four other children. Are yes, they helping to pay on their student loans? They're adults, mm-hmm. and uh, no. It's main, It's the one that's living with me now. It's his student loans that I that I signed for the parent plus. The others are managing their own. Got it. They're okay. doing, you know, well. Yeah. Okay. The first thing that I would say is let's try to focus on how we're going to make up the difference. If you need, we'll call it 4000 a month or 4500 depending on how much your son's able to contribute, you're only going to have 1600 mm-hmm. a month coming in from Social Security. So you've got about mm-hmm. $3,000 a month that you're going to need to come in from somewhere else. So Exactly. Yeah. So number one is we're going to need to think about whether or not that long term is manageable. So I would say the mm-hmm. one thing, again, uh, I want to get to here is your expenses and how much of that I think your adult son who lives with you might be able to contribute toward. Number two, mm-hmm. and I know you said that he has a minimal income. Does he have the ability to potentially earn more? He does. I'm trying to encourage him to uh, complete his degree. He only has um, like two semesters left, uh, okay. but he's working, so he's he's not interested in going back to school. Uh, <laughs> right. But that that would you know increase his his marketability. Yeah, uh, it could certainly. But I think also since you're paying on his loans, and frankly, it doesn't sound like you can afford to do that for very much longer if you want to be able to retire. He's going to have to do it either now or later. So I would certainly encourage Mm -hmm. him to say, you're going to have to kick in a little bit more, either towards the expenses or towards these student loans. Mm -hmm. You're doing the right thing, number one, by contributing to your 401k. You are allowed to contribute more. And I would encourage you to contribute as much as you can possibly afford. Because number one, those dollars that you put in are tax deductible to you now. Um, And you're in a Mm -hmm. a pretty high income level here. So if right now you're putting in $12,000 a year on your, you have $40,000, well, next year that'll be 52 plus whatever you earn. And the year after that, it's going to be 64 Mm -hmm. plus whatever you've earned on that. So we can Mm -hmm. certainly grow this pot through, Mm -hmm. number one, contributions, and number two, investing it appropriately. So you've got to look at those two things. Number one, try to increase those contributions. It seems to me that if your expenses are $4,500 a month and your income Mm -hmm. is around $90,000 a year, you've probably got a little Mm -hmm. bit of room here. Do you also have any other savings pot, emergency fund, money in the bank? I don't. You don't. Okay. I don't. I, I try and keep a balance in my checking account, but it's, I wouldn't, call it like an emergency fund. It's not enough. But I try to keep a running balance. Um, I have like three different accounts, you know, one that I pay my condo from the mortgage, the other one I use for the condo fees, and the third one I use for like um, maintaining electricity, food, etc. Okay. So maybe I have three accounts. Okay. I try and keep at least a balance of about 500 to 700 a month. But there. if you had an emergency tomorrow... That may not cover it. Mm. So you you really need to do two things here. I think you've got to look Mm -hmm. at your budget a little bit more carefully because I'm doing Mm -hmm. the math here and I think you're spending more than $4,500 a month. You have $90,000 a year Mm -hmm. coming in. After taxes, Mm -hmm. that's more than the $55,000 roughly that you're calculating here on your monthly expenses. So I think, Mm -hmm. number one, you're spending more than you think you are. 
number two, we've got to increase your income from your son who's living with you or what he's able to participate here. And and I think overall, Mm -hmm. we can get you there, Gloria. We can get you to a point where your income and your expenses can align so that you're able to retire. But I would advise you to talk to a financial Mm -hmm. advisor at this point because we're going to have to do quite a bit more math here. We've got to talk about building that emergency fund and putting a couple hundred dollars away every single month. We've got to talk about increasing Mm -hmm. your 401k. We've got to talk about realistically how much longer can you work? You know, you may, you may, it may mm-hmm. not be your choice. You may say, I'm going to work until I'm 80, but, you know, our health may dictate exactly. otherwise. So I think mm. at this point, we can make this work. We can look at all these numbers and we can help you make some decisions. Some of them may be harder than others, but mm-hmm. I would like it if you would talk to one of our advisors. You're in Brockton, Massachusetts. I think we have a, a couple of offices that yeah. are within 20 or 30 minutes oh. from you. So okay. if you're comfortable with it, I would like to uh, put you on hold here and see if we can connect you with someone that would be able to set up a meeting if you're open to it. I'm open to it. I need help. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call. We're out of time on The Rick Edelman Show. I want to remind you one more time about our Coronavirus Resource Center. You'll find the link on rickedelman.com. Rick will be back next week. And remember, as always, you can reach us at 888-PLAN-RICK, 888-752-6742, or at rickedelman.com. Thanks for being with us. Get the truth about money every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.